All right, Maxwell, whenever you're ready, uh, numbers 30 and 31. All right. A reading from the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 30, uh, th uh, through 31. Rules about vows. Moses gave the following instructions to the leaders of the tribes of Israel. When a man makes a vow to give something to the Lord or takes an oath to abstain from something, he must not break his promise. He must do everything that he, he said he would. When a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to give something to the Lord or promises to abstain from something, she must do everything that she vowed or promised unless her father raises an objection when he hears about it. But if her, but if her father forbids her to fulfill the vow when he hears about it, she will not be required to keep it. The Lord will forgive her because her father refused to let her keep it. If an unmarried woman makes a vow, whether deliberately or carelessly, or promises to abstain from something, and then marries, she must do everything that she vowed or promised unless her husband raises an objection or when he hears about it. But if her, uh, her husband forbids her to fulfill the vow when he hears about it, she is not required to keep keep it. The Lord will forgive her. A widow for or a divorced woman must keep every vow she makes and every promise to abstain from something. If a, if a married woman makes a vow or promises to abstain from something, she must do everything that she vowed or or promised unless her husband raises objection when he hears about it. But if her husband forbids her to fulfill the vow when he hears about it, she is not required to keep it. The Lord will forgive her because her husband prevented her from keeping her vow. Her husband has the right to affirm or to annul any vow or promise that she has made. But but if by the day after he hears of the vow, he has raised no objection, she must do everything that she has vowed or promised. He has affirmed he has affirmed the vow by not objecting on the day he heard it. But if he if later if he later annuls the vow, he must suffer the consequences for the failure to fulfill the vow. These are the rules that the Lord gave Moses concerning vows made by an unmarried woman living in her father's house or by a married woman. The holy war against Midian. The Lord said to Moses, punish the Midianites for what they did to the people of Israel. After you have done that, you will die. So Moses said to the people, get ready for war so that you can attack Midian and punish them for what they did to the Lord. Each tribe of Israel sent a thousand men to war. So a thousand men were chosen from each tribe, a total of 12,000 men ready for each battle. Moses sent them to war under the command of Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, who took charge of the sacred objects and the trumpets for giving signals. They attacked Midian, as the Lord had commanded Moses, and killed all the men, including the five kings of Midian. Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hor, and Reba. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor. The people of Israel captured the Midianite women and children, took their cattle and their flocks, plundered all their wealth, and burned all their cities and camps. They took all the loot that they had captured, 
including the prisoners and the animals, and brought it to, brought them to Moses and Elias and Eleazar to the community of the people of Israel who were at the camp on the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. The army returns. Moses, Eleazar, and all the leaders of the community went out of the camp to meet the army. Moses became angry with the officers, the commanders of battalions and companies who had returned from the war. He asked them, why have you kept all the women alive? Remember that it was the woman who followed Balaam's instructions and that Peor led the people to be unfaithful to the Lord. That was what brought the epidemic on the Lord's people. So now kill every boy and, and kill every woman who has had sexual intercourse. But keep alive for yourselves all the girls and all the women who are virgins. Now all of you who have killed anyone or have touched a corpse must stay outside the camp for seven days. On the third day and on the seventh day, purify yourselves and the women you've captured. You must also purify every piece of clothing and everything made of leather, goat's hair, or wood. Eleazar the priest said to the men who have returned from battle, These are the regulations that the Lord has given to Moses. Everything that will not burn, such as gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, or lead, is to be purified by passing it through the fire. Everything else is to be purified by the water for purification. On the seventh day, you must wash your clothes, and then you will be ritually, then you will be ritually clean, and will be permitted to enter the camp. Division of the loot. The Lord said to Moses, "You and Eleazar, together with the other leaders of the community, are to count everything that has been captured, including the prisoners and the animals. Divide." what was taken into two equal parts, one part for the soldiers and the other part for the rest of the community. From the part that belongs to the soldiers, withhold as a tax for the Lord, one out of every 500 prisoners and the same proportion of the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. Give them to Eleazar the priest as a special contribution to the Lord. From the part given to the rest of the people, take one out of 50, every 50 prisoners and the same proportion of cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. Give them to the Levites who are in charge of the Lord's tent. Moses and Eleazar did what the Lord commanded. The following is a list of what was captured by his soldiers, in addition to what they kept for themselves. 675,000 sheep and goats, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 virgins. The half share of the soldiers was 337,500 sheep and goats, of which 675 were the tax for the Lord, 36,000 cattle for the soldiers, of which 72 were taxed for the Lord, 30,500 donkeys for the soldiers, of which 61 were the tax for the Lord, and 16,000 virgins for the soldiers, of which 32 were the tax for the Lord. So Moses gave Eleazar the, the tax as a special contribution to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. The share of the community was the same as that for the soldiers, 337,500 sheep and goats, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 virgins. From this share, Moses took one of every 50 prisoners and animals. And as the Lord had commanded, gave them to the Levites who were in charge of the Lord's tent. 
Then the officers who had commanded the army went to Moses and reported, Sir, we have counted the soldiers under our command and not one of them is missing. So we are bringing the gold ornaments, armlets, bracelets, rings, earrings, and necklaces that each of us have taken. We offer them to the Lord as a payment for our lives so that he will protect us. Moses and Eleazar received the gold, all of which was in the form of ornaments. The total contribution of the officers weighed over 400 pounds. Those who were not, were not officers kept the loot they had taken. So Moses and Eleazar took the gold to the tent so that the Lord would protect the people of Israel. Okay, so a lot more stuff was said, but I want to focus just uh, quickly on uh, Numbers 30, specifically with um, the different vowels. So we've already read um, Luke 1 before, and we've gone through Matthew, but I want to revisit these passages in light of this Old Testament text. So the angel Gabriel came unto Mary and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Who, having heard, was troubled at his saying and thought with herself what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said to her, Fear not, for thou hast found grace with God. Behold, they shall conceive in thy womb and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be called great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord shall give him the throne of David his father, and he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be done? Because I know not man. Okay. So translations are often going to say different things. Like how can this be done if I'm a virgin? How can this be done? Whatever. More accurately is how can this be done if I know not man? Um, so I'll give you some context. If somebody comes up to me and says like, hey, do you want a cigarette? It's like, no, I do not smoke. It means I don't smoke now. I won't smoke tomorrow. I won't smoke ever. It's not something I do. Mary, in a similar sense, said the same thing. How can this be? Because I know not man. I don't have sexual relations. If you understand, if we just jump to Matthew real quick, it's the first chapter of Matthew, it's verse 24. When Joseph woke up, this is right after the angel comes and tells him, like, hey, take Mary, be your wife. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Okay. So, you got to understand first how Jewish marriages worked. They were espoused, meaning they were already legally married. So, Mary, at this point, knows that she is married. So, for her to ask, how can this be, if I know not man, makes no sense unless she has a vow of virginity. Why? Because she's not stupid. She knows what happens when you consummate a marriage. She knows how babies are made, right? So her question isn't more so specifics, but or it, it isn't more so like, it's, it's more her worried about her vow of virginity that she took, okay? And how we know this, we can look at the context of verse 35 in Luke 1. It says, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High will overshadow thee. Therefore also the Holy which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
So in essence, the angel answers her question. How is this going to happen? How is this going to happen if I don't, I don't have marital relations? I have a vow of virginity. Well, he explains it by the power of the Holy Ghost. The reason I bring up Matthew is because it says that Joseph took Mary into his home as his wife. See, there's nothing in the prophecy of the virginal conception that Mary has to be a virgin at the time when she gives birth. She only has to be a virgin when she conceives. But notice here, oftentimes we focus on Mary, but I want to focus on St. Joseph a bit. It says he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to Jesus. And the consummation of the marriage, right? You, you the, the male, the bridegroom, is supposed to go prepare a place, just as Jesus is doing for us now. He's supposed to prepare a place for, the, for a home for them to live in. And in there, they're going to consummate the marriage. The two, man and woman, become one flesh, right? But notice here, on the wedding night, because Jesus was born way after the wedding night, on the wedding night, they did not consummate the marriage. There's nothing in the virginal conception prophecy that says Mary has to be a virgin when she gives birth, only when she conceives. So what, what are the implications of this? Is simply that St. Joseph and Mary had a very specific relationship, a very particular relationship. And it was one revolved around these vows. And so as we read in Numbers 30, if the husband accepts the vow, then it is binding. And he cannot break the vow. So St. Joseph would have had to accept this vow. And just looking at it objectively, how can this be if I know not man? How can this be if I don't have marital relations? She wasn't asking the specifics of making a baby, but in the relation to her vow of virginity. And so her question only makes sense if she's taken a vow of virginity. Um, and just real quick to talk about, again, Matthew 1. Until she gave birth to a son, that does not mean that they had marital relations after. We know Mary's perpetual virginity, it's dogma. So just quick verses to keep in mind. Uh, 2 Samuel 6, 23. 1 Timothy 4.13 and 1 Corinthians 15.25. They read as follows with 2 Samuel 6. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. She definitely didn't start having children after she died. The word until in this context, as well as in Matthew, simply implies a time. So what is the author, what is Matthew saying? That they did not consummate the marriage? That even when he took Mary to his home, on the night of consummation, on the on the great fulfillment of the wedding, he did not consummate the marriage. Why? Why would Matthew say that? Well, because you understand Mary's the new Eve, and she's the new queen mother, she's the new Ark of Covenant. You don't put anything less than holy in that which is holy. So the Ark of the Covenant didn't have regular bread. It had holy bread from heaven. It didn't have regular rocks. It had the stone tablets. It didn't have just a random rod, but it had the staff of Aaron. So, in a similar sense, this is even more so why Mary would not have had kids. For the reason being here is that she is truly the new Eve, right? She's truly the new Ark of the Covenant. Um, and then there's 1 Timothy 4, until I come attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching, that Paul should talk about talking to Timothy, telling him what to do until his arrival. It doesn't mean Timothy's going to stop once Paul gets there. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his footstool. 
That doesn't mean Jesus is going to stop reigning once all his enemies are under him. Um, very clearly, the word until just denotes the time frame. So just it's just talking about a specific time. Um, and there aren't many implications uh, to what exactly that would mean. Because if he's not saying that they did consummate their marriage after, what is he saying instead? He's saying that St. Joseph would have acknowledged and followed Mary's vow of perpetual virginity, even to the point of not consummating their marriage. Isn't that amazing? Here in Scripture, it's just very, not clear as day, but still very present. He who has eyes to see, let him see, I suppose. Um, if there are no f questions about uh what is your question they would have taken their vows of uh, virginity at a younger age yeah so tr as katie says tradition has it mary was in the temple and so she was like 12 or 15 um she she was dedicated in the temple at a very young age there's different um saints who have revealed this uh, through the intercession of the Blessed Mother have spoken of Mary's early life. Um, a lot of great stuff. Uh, uh, Sister Mary of Agrita speaks about this, about Mary's earthly life, or her early life, um, and how she would have dedicated herself at a very young age and would have stayed in, in the temple, right, and serving there. Um, and she would have taken this vow of virginity out of pure love for God, which is really interesting stuff. But yes. Um, there are no other questions. Jimena. Feel free to read. Orb 7. The false attractions of adultery. My child, keep my words and store up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as an apple of your eye. Bind them in your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say your wisdom. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call And call insight your intimate friend. That they may keep you from losing the woman. From the adulter adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house. I looked out through a lattice, and I saw among the simple ones, I have served among the yaws, a young man without sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in twilight in the, in the evening, at the, night, at the time of night and darkness. And the woman comes towards him, decked, out, le decked it out like a prostitute, wildly of heart. She is loud and way word her feet do not do not stay at home now in the street now in the, now in the squares and a, every corner she lays in wait she seizes him and kisses him and with pudent face he says to him i had to other sacrifice i had to offer sacrifices and today i have paid my vows so now i have come out to meet you to seek you urgently eagerly and i have found you i have decked my couch with coverings co colored spread of egyptian linen 
I have perfumed my bed and myrfern, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. He will not come home until full moon. With much seductive speech, she preserves him with her smooth talk. She compels him right away. He follows her and goes into the ox to the slaughter or bounds like a stag towards a trap until an arrow, arrow pierces its entrails. He is like a bird crushes into a snare, not knowing that it is will cost him his life. And now, my children, listen to me, and be attentive to my words of my mouth. Do not let your hearts turn aside her way, her, in, to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are those she has laid low, and numerous of her victims. Her house is in the way of Saul, goes down to the chambers of death. Okay, so just a quick context. Um, so all this suggestive language here is identifying. Um, it, this is the third and climactic instruction on adultery and seduction. It's an example of a story of the same type, uh, which we'll see later on in uh, later on in this book. Um, by its negative portrayal of the deceitful woman who speaks in night to a lone youth it serves as a foil to a trustworthy wisdom in chapter eight so as i mentioned um earlier there's two women that are going to be uh, identified multiple times throughout the book of proverbs there's the lady wisdom which is seen as this ideal wife um the perfect wife and we'll see that in uh, chapter eight um and there's also lady folly who is this sort of strange woman um an adulteress, essentially. And so they just personify different things. Uh, clearly Lady Wisdom, right? Um, um, the fear of the Lord, the root of the, the, root of the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Or wisdom is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Something like that. Um, so Lady Wisdom personifies that. And so in this, um, not survive fear, but um, holy fear of the Lord. She learns to um, live as the Lord would want us to. Lady Folly, however, does not have this fear. And she even attempts to offer these gross offerings, these sacrifices to the Lord. Um, all, all these different things here in this passage. And so she just, she serves as a, as a foil to this character. Um, and you'll see the great contrast when we read tomorrow's chapter. But all in all, as always, go back, reread this, um, meditate upon it. It's very important that we do so. Um, because as um, St. Jerome had said, this is the second most important book that any Christian should read. Um, the first is actually the Book of Psalms. As you learn how to live a good life, um, you learn instruction, you learn discipline, wisdom, insight, and understanding. 
you learn this from the wisdom literature. And so it's good that we read this, especially um, on your own. But in any case, if there are no questions, Tatiana can like go. Oh, right. Hold on. So today we have, if I can find it, John chapter 6 today. So we see here, um, John chapter 6, we're doing the word of God, bread of life, right? So it's, it's one of the central passages in the entire Bible that teaches about the reality and the mystery of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. So here, we're having the fourth and fifth signs uh, that point to Jesus as the one that leads the second exodus. So we see, as God fed the people in Israel with manna, while they were wandering in the wilderness, Jesus feeds his followers, right? And then we have the walking on the water. It draws on the imagery of the crossing of the Red Sea. And then we have the extended discourse in John and later, and reflects further on the manna motif, right? Focusing upon God's ultimate provision through the Son of Man. And then finally, we'll have the response of Jesus' hearers at the end of John. Um, and kind of challenges us, uh, the readers of the gospel. So with the multiplication of the loaves, we have that this is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. We'll see this, right? We'll see some of the differences. Um, that we see that how John's account is going to be ultimately fulfilled in the miracle of the Eucharist, right? So here we have it. After this, Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee of Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of the Passover was near. When, Jew when Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He said this to test them, because he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, There's a boy here who has five loaves, five barley loaves, and two fish. But what good are these for so many? Have the people, Jesus said, have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place. So the men reclined about 5,000 in number. Then when Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining, and also as much of the fish as they wanted. When they had their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather the fragments of leftover so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve wicker baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. When the people saw that this sign he'd done, they said, This is truly the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. Since Jesus knew they were going to 
come and carry him off to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. So again, we have John. He's giving more details here, right? Uh, he gives several distinctive details, actually. And there's these uh, aspects that aren't found in the synoptics. So we see as um, there are strong parallels, of course, between the synoptic accounts and John with the independence of the independence the independence of the Joannine account of the feeding of the 5,000 is well established, right? So unique to John are the mention of the Passover, the roles of Philip and Andrew, and the young boy here with barley loaves and dried fish. And also, we have compared with the synoptics, John emphasizes the initiative of Jesus from the beginning to the end of the narrative. And so while some of these details have little sin, not symbolic significance, several of them are combined to give this account its character as a sign. Of course, relating uh, the manna from heaven to bread through Jesus. We'll see this. So going over these elements, uh, we see that John here links the action to the signs of Jesus, uh, one of John's distinctive terms. He doesn't call Jesus's miracles miracles. He calls them signs because they're always meant to point beyond themselves to some other reality. So whether it's Christ's own heavenly origin, divinity, or pointing to the sacraments, right? And in this case, we see the sacraments of the Eucharist will be the one that this is pointing forward to. And then we have uh, echoes of the Old Testament. Of course, we have the echoes of the Old Testament here. The Greek says that Jesus went up to the mountain, literally singular, oros, and he did this at Passover time. So, of course, a Jew thinking about someone going up into the mountain at Passover time, performing a mir miraculous act of feeding people with bread in the wilderness, they're going to think about Moses. So John here is highlighting the parallels between the season in which the miracle occurred. It was um, springtime at Passover, but also the parallels between um, Jesus's actions in uh, the Old Testament. So we see that Jesus um, is acting not just as Messiah, but as a new Moses. We've um, have been emphasizing this point, right? So then we also have um, this origin of the miracle and the situation which they find themselves, right? So we see that verses 5 and 6, they're kind of puzzling. Uh, John here stresses that Jesus already had plans to feed the crowd miraculously, yet he still turns to Philip and asks him, where they might buy enough bread for all. And so Philip calculates that it would take more than eight months of a labor's wages to buy enough food for everyone. So this test of Philip's, Philip's test, it's actually for our benefit, the readers. Um, so we now know the extent of the need and the unlikelihood of meeting it through uh, this situation through ordinary means. 
And then Andrew's response, um, here John gives this distinctive element of, of John, Andrew's response. He says, uh, for them to take this boy's food. And so, either way, uh, they're like, we could make something happen with this. Um, but either way, the words and the actions of both Philip and Andrew, they present Jesus, the leader of the new exodus, as the only hope, right? So this is when even more important things happen, right? Jesus uh, makes the people sit down first. And um, John tells us that there is a lot of grass. Why would he tell us that there's a lot of grass, right? It could have been that uh, just this eyewitness details, like something that just stuck to memory. Um, the grass was really green. It was lush. It was springtime. There's a lot of grass, which it was springtime. And um, the grass was lush and very green. But we also see that Jesus intentionally wants everyone to sit down. We might call to mind as we also just read over this too. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me recline. He makes me lay down in green pastures. So here we have Old Testament Lord makes the people, his flock, recline in green pastures. And here in the New Testament, Jesus makes the people recline on the grass before he feeds them with the multiplication of the loaves. So, of course, here here's this allusion to Psalm 23 and the divine shepherd of Psalm 23. One of those um, significant type deals here that we're seeing. And this is what Jesus is doing here, right? He's making the crowd sit down so that he can act as a good shepherd as he does feed his flock. And so now we see that his kind of only problem is that he only has five loaves. But we know that this isn't a problem because he takes the loaves. And when he had given things, he distributed them to all those who were seated. The Greek word here uh, for giving things is Eucharistisas. And of course, we get the word Eucharist from that, meaning Thanksgiving. It's the traditional prayer before meals, right? We call it grace. We might know it as a grace. For the Jews, they would pray a prayer of thanksgiving before consuming any meal as a way of recognizing that all gifts come from God. So here in this case, Jesus gives thanks before the meal. There are two Greek works for giving thanks. You can use eulogine. Or Eucharistisas. And here, John picks uh, Eucharistisas. And uh, it's been known that a lot of scholars think this is because he wants us to think about the Eucharist, about the Christian Eucharist, right? Not um, not to just look backwards at the Passover of, the, of Moses, but also forward to the Thanksgiving of the early church, right? So we see here that it will make us think of this, especially uh, while, which especially in John's gospel isn't written until around 90 AD. And if it's one of the 
later gospels written, the practice of the Eucharist would have already been firmly established in the church, even referring to it as Thanksgiving. And of course, we have uh, evidence of this in the Didache, which is uh, the early Christian writings from the Apostolic Fathers, the time of the Apostolic Fathers. So here Jesus gives thanks, and he performs his Thanksgiving, and he breaks the bread to the people. And we see that the main point of this sign is clear. I mean, in the face of humanity's greatest need, Jesus alone is abundant source of life. And we see these teachings, they're framed in allusions from Exodus chapter 16, right? We might remember. We see this that Philip is being put to a test, just as the Israelites were put to the test in the giving of manna. And we saw as meat followed manna, fish follows bread. Uh, we see that the crowd in Galilee ate as much as they wanted, and the Israelites were allowed to take as much as they needed. We see that Jesus uh, directed the disciples to gather the fragments as God directed the Israelites. And we see that the reason given for the gathering in here um, is so that none of the fragments would be lost. And so this is more accurately translated as perish, which of course correlates with the descriptions of the day left over, days left over food rotting in Exodus. And then later we see that um, Jesus contrasts the food that endures to internal life with that which perishes, right? And we see these 12 baskets also mentioned in synoptics. They, they could connect they do connect here to the church's apostles with the tribes of Israel, right? But we see that this concept of the 12 apostles as a special group is kind of a, a, a minor thing in the Gospel of John, but we still see this, and it's still evident here. And then we go on to see the, the people's response, right? It clearly showed that they understood the multiplication of bread as a miraculous act of God. They concluded that Jesus was the prophet who was coming to the world, right? So they're basing their eschatological hopes on the prim promise of Deuteronomy. We will see this. The Jews awaited, and we know this, the Jews awaited a prophet like Moses to usher in the new kingdom of God, right? And some even believed that when this final time came, manna would be again sent. So there's excitement here, right? Excitement mounted. They're, they're asking themselves, was the Messianic age dawning? But we see um, all too quickly that the Jews were uh, favoring for this political lib liberation, right? And they're trying to center this on Jesus. So we know that Jesus was more than a prophet like Moses, right? He was no mere king who would reign in the political realm so he could not allow the court the crowds to distort his mission this could create misunderstanding right and give authorities a legal reason to apprehend him so of course we have here at the end he uh, withdrew against the mountain by himself alone right so then we will see uh, as we continue reading he will clarify the nature of his mission at another time we know that his kingdom is not worldly it's not of this world 
we will clarify that as we continue reading. Now we have the walking on the water. When it was evening, the disciples went down to the sea, embarked in a boat, and went across the sea to Capernaum. It had already grown dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they began to be afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They wanted to take him into the boat, but the boat immediately arrived at the shore to which they were heading. The next day, the crowd that remained across the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not gone along with his disciples in the boat, but only his disciples had left. Other boats came from Tiberias, near near the place where they had eaten the bread when the Lord gave thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into boats and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So here, John's fifth sign, it's a, fleeting, a fitting complement to the fourth, as we just saw, right? It also develops as an um, exodus motif. So here, by walking on the sea and delivering the disciples' boat safely to shore, you see this here. Jesus is uh, reenacting the crossing of the Red Sea. There is this uh, less detailed description um, and has less obvious verbal correspondences with the Exodus account, yet still it is a close uh, examination and it still uh, yields a profound message here. The setting of this event it's carefully and concisely uh, established we see this right evening has come and jesus has not rejoined his disciples so they decided to make a night voyage across the sea of galilee to capernaum without him and so they're about halfway across the 11 kilometer wide sea right and a storm hits them and we have these descriptive details. They function much like the testimony of Philip and Andrew um, in the previous narrative, right? Uh, presenting the great need of the disciples and the truly miraculous nature of the sign, right? John here, he does not describe the disciples as simply being calmed by the sight of Jesus walking along the sea on the shore, right? Jesus walked out to them in the middle of the sea and rescued them. So we see here the act of walking on the sea is only part of the miracle. The boat was amazingly transported to land. So we can assume that the disciples were afraid while they struggled in the storm. But this narrative here, it mentions, it only mentions their fear of Jesus when they saw Jesus, they were terrified. And we know that uh, the best way to understand this fear was, of course, to see it in context of divine appearance. We've talked about this, right? With the use of the divine name, I am. 
we see that some translations render here, I am he, right? So they're supplying a word which is absent in the Greek. And so here, the disciples, they are struck by the awesome presence of God in Jesus. We've talked about this so many times. Being afraid, it's not like scared, but in awe, right? So you are truly in front of a divinity, right? about this many times and so we see that the crossing of the red sea was also regarded as a powerful theophany on the water and we see here in psalm um, 77 it's describing this exodus event it speaks of the fear generated by god making his stormy way through the sea and it says this when the waters saw you O god when the waters saw you they were afraid the very deep trembled, the clouds poured out like water, the skies thundered, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your ways, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your proof Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So we see the sign in, in John. It escalates the presentation of Jesus beyond the previous sign, right? Beyond what we had just read. So Jesus is more than the prophet like Moses. He is exalted as a manifestation of God himself. So while the, Jesus, while the disciples are separated from Jesus, they are in the dark, right? They're struggling under their own power against the forces around them. So God comes to deliver them through Jesus. And when they see and accept him, they are delivered. And so we see that after the disciples have landed, this narrative continues with a transition, right? These are the last four or two verses that I, I had read, um, adding on to this section. Right? So this, this section confirms that the disciples had set sail without Jesus, right? In the boat, in the only boat available. At that time here, it describes the later arrival of more boats, right? Which enabled some of the crowd to follow Jesus and his disciples to Capernaum. We see embedded in this text is also um, a phrase which given its context of course it's striking here we read that the boat the boats arrived at the place where the bread was eaten after the lord had given thanks and there are several variant readings um of these verses in more ancient manuscripts right and some of them which omit the reference to giving thanks again from eucharist time right so possibly scribal copies, copyists found the reference to giving things out of context, right? But also, on the other hand, the jarring effect it can have on us may have been intended as a bridge from the miraculous feeding to the Eucharistic language of the bread of life, which now we're getting into. Now we have the bread from heaven or um, the bread of life discourse here. 
And when they found him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has sent his seal. So they said to him, What can we do to accomplish the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. So they said to him, What sign can you do, that we may see and believe in you? What can you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, Amen. Amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I told you that although you have seen me, you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me, because I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose anything of what he gave me, but I should raise it on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I shall raise him on the last day. The Jews murmured about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we know? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have came down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Stop murmuring amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is, it is written by the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to my Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen. Amen, I say to you. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and die in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I have life because of the Father. So also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
and like your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So we have here the reunion of the crowd and Jesus in Capernaum. It marks a return to the theme of the first sign. So, even though they ate the bread, the crowd had not perceived the sign, right? So now it will be explained to them here. So still, their experience on the other side of the sea had caused us many to wonder if Jesus could be the prophet like Moses, right? What we have here, in order to make the comparison between Jesus and Moses, they felt they needed a greater miracle from Jesus. Right. After all, we saw that Moses had provided entire nation with bread from heaven for 40 years. Right. So in support of their quest for more, the people reminded Jesus of Moses's uh, feet by citing a variation of Psalm 78. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right. But contrary to what the people intended, this quotation is used to correct them. Right. Jesus says, actually, God is the subject of the quotation, right? God, not Moses, is the one who provided the manna. But now, by offering bread from heaven, Jesus, of course, he's comparing himself with God, transcending the role of Moses. And so the audience here is challenged to rise above their focus on Moses and transfer their allegiance to Jesus. So those who wish to eat the bread that gives them eternal life must believe in Jesus, right? Integral, integral to this belief, it is a recognition of the heavenly origin of Jesus, right? It's indicated by many references to Jesus having come down to heaven, right? You see this in this chapter, and we'll see this in 41, 42, 48. We see this so, so many times going on again. And so, furthering that, as one more strong tie to his heavenly father, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. So this is a one, this is the first of Jesus' seven I am's sayings in John that have complete complements for the verb to be. So we have here in John chapter 6, of course, I am the bread of life. And then we'll have John chapter 8 and 9, I am the light of the world. Uh, 10 and 9 again, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. In 14, I am the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. Those seven I am sayings. And of course, as we noticed before, the number seven is significant, right? It's denoting completion or perfection so in connection with john chapter 4 and here chapter 6 we've already established that this simple phrase i am we know this is alluding to god yahweh one god elaborating upon the affirmation of divinity the i am it's describing his divinity in relation to people here so in declaring i am the bread of life Jesus claims to offer the only satisfaction for the spiritually hungry, right? So just as bread was a staple of life, Jesus is the necessity 
for spiritual sustenance. So the same and its accompanying discourse teach that Jesus himself, the life-giving food, is the life-giving food, right? Not that he is just the dispenser or that the life he offers is spiritual and eternal, not just uh, physical and temporal, right? So the audience here in chapter 6 is told to eat this bread, right? This concept is further developed with the words, he says, The bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it's further in Jesus enjoins all of us to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. So immediately we know that uh, we are associating this. We know this to be the Eucharist, right? Um, the first reader, the first readers of the Gospel of John, would have made this connection um, that they were already, like I had mentioned, they're they're. they're they're already regularly celebrating the Lord's Supper. But um, the Eucharist, of course, would have been unknown by those who heard the words when they were first spoken. So they must, we must look elsewhere for this primary theme, right? So the sacramental allusions are used in the sign and the discourse to make the Eucharist itself point to truths concerning Christ and faith in him. We see that the Israelite wisdom and tradition and Isaiah, they both provide us some explanatory background so we can compare the words of Jesus in uh, this chapter, right? With the invitation of of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, we'll say we'll see that it says, "Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed." And we can also look in um, Sirach chapter fifteen and twenty-four. And we see in Isaiah also the Lord invites hearers to eat the bread that suffices or satisfies. Right, Isaiah chapter fifty-five. So God's word is described as coming down from heaven, bringing bread to the eater. Again, Isaiah 55. So in light of these biblical themes, Jesus, as the bread of life, is primarily understood, of course, as God's life-giving word, right? There's this interesting term um, to describe how we are to eat this bread of life. So instead of the usual verb, excuse me, instead of the usual verb for eating, which is um, phagin, used throughout the chapter in John chapter 6 verse 56 we find a word originally used of animals it's munching or chewing this word is trojan right or trojan but those who chew my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I am them so we see in this graphic way we're being called to a total intimate involved in ongoing relationship with Jesus. He has come down from heaven to invite all of us to partake fully of his incarnation and thus find eternal life that will transcend even physical death, right? So given John's realized eschatology elsewhere, it is notable for us that 
in this discourse, eternal life is to be culminated in the last day, resurrection of individual believers. Right. Now, going into this last part, we have the choice before all followers, the words of eternal life here. Then many of his disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the Spirit that gives life while the flesh is of no avail? The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and we are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you twelve? Yet is not one of you a devil? He was referring to Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot. It was he who would betray him, one of the twelve. Jesus has has presented his claims here, right? Calling for belief. So this passage here, it goes on to relate the response of those who have followed him to this point. So true disciples are sifted from these unbelievers. We have already been told that the work we must do to to have eternal life is to believe in him and him who God has sent, right? So this belief has been likened to eating the bread of Jesus who had come down from heaven. And so here we, we have read, said, it is not an easy belief and not all can stomach the bread, right? And the disciples described Jesus' words as difficult um, to accept or believe. And so the sense of the words being offensive, intolerable, or incredible is conveyed as the conf- as the question Jesus says in the next verse. It implies, does this offend you? So Jesus clearly knows why some are offended, right? And we see here in this chapter and uh, going forward, it all imply his foreknowledge, of course, a characteristic of the Joannine Christ here, as John conveys. John wants to avoid the conclusion that Jesus has made a mistake in choosing some of his disciples. So his words also serve to remind all of his disciples of the divine initiative that underlies faith. How Jesus responds to the the hesitancy of the disciples by proposing a further consideration. You see this in verse 62. It says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So this conditional sentence lacks a conclusion, creating a purposeful ambivalence. 
So along with disciples, the reader is forced into a decision, right? We, we have this decision to make as well. If Jesus ascended back into heaven, would it be easier or harder to accept? Then the next verse follows with a typical Johannine statement referring to the life-giving spirit. However, the antithesis, the flesh, it causes inter interpretive problems, right? How can Jesus say that the flesh is of no profit after having exhorted his disciples to eat his flesh in order to live forever? So we see in the final analyst, anal we see if here that it would appear that the evangelist is simply but effectively calling for a full recognition of the spiritual realm, right, as the source of the eternal life Jesus offers. So, with the context of Eucharistic language, we must go beyond the sign of bread to the spiritual reality of Christ. Finally, we have here the disciples make their choices, right? Uh, verse 66 describes the actual division of the group of the disciples, which began with the question um, six verses back, and it was made explicit in verse 64. Many disciples could no, no longer follow him. and the, But the twelve won't also leave, will they? So Jesus asks them this. And in such a way, according to hearing John's grammar, a negative answer is expected. And there is emphasis. It may have been intended to confirm their faith as others were fallen away, of course. So we see in the first time in John's gospel, Peter speaks out on behalf of the disciples. And Peter makes up a three-part answer. Well, six, verse 68, 69 makes up Peter's three-part answer here, which begins with another rhetorical question in response to that of Jesus. Peter says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. With these words, they echo uh, Jesus' words of verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are the spirit and life. So the all-embracing, life-giving quality of Jesus' words are obvious to the disciples. And in spite of their difficulty, we see that the twelve have decided to accept his words rather than turn away from Jesus like others have. So John is clearly distinguishing Peter and the twelve from the unbelievers. He, the, the use of his verbs here, believe and know, together, it's truly a characteristic of John. And they exist in either order, right? So it's unlikely that here a definite development is being described. So it's much easier to maintain that these two verbs are practically synonymous in John. They're often used interchangeably in close proximity to one another. So not all disciples share in the internal life Jesus gives because we see that not all disciples remain attached to Jesus in faith. Some disciples can be described as followers yet uncommitted, right? And there's others, uh, as we know, Judas and we read, will actually turn on Jesus and in betrayal, right? So in all cases here, John makes it clear that the divine initiative and sovereign sovereignty rules over the course of Jesus's 
life-giving ministry. So summarizing this here, we see, we saw in John chapter 5, and as we just read here in chapter 6, we see how Jesus does what his audience would recognize to be the word of God. Right? He works on the Sabbath, uh, something that rabbis insisted only God should do. And he leads the new exodus, not in the role of, Je of, not in the role of Moses, but in the role of God. And in the wilderness, he feeds the people with bread from heaven. He crosses the sea, delivering his disciples from danger. We see that the words and actions of Jesus indicate the nature of the relationship he has with the Heavenly Father. He has been sent from heaven to act with the Father's authority. Right? There's no way he could be considered a rival to God. Rather, the Son, he acts in complete unity with God the Father. Jesus is unique in his relationship with the Father, right? His, dis his divinity distinguishes him from all other agents in the plan of God. He acts in a divine initiative and sovereignty to bring eternal life to those who respond to him in faith. We see that much is revealed about humanity's relation to Jesus in these two chapters as well. We see that when people are separated from them, they are not able to deliver themselves from their troubles. They are completely dependent upon him and his initiative. So once Jesus enters our lives and confronts us, then we are asked to make a choice, right? We either accept his word and entrust our lives to him, or um, we decide to stay on our own. So we see here now that there are only two groups of people, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. So the gospel, as it continues to progress, confrontations continue and the division between belief and unbelief deepens. That is John chapter 6 for today. Sorry we went over a little bit, but so much to go over. Um, before we close out on prayer, I'm going to read what Katie had to say.